Who are you? My name's Jason Waite. I wrote and directed and voiced a cartoon called Starship Goldfish. The pilot of it released in 2018. And since then, I've mostly been writing on television shows, waiting for my star to rise. That's it, I think, really. What are the three things you value most in life? Wow, that's a good one. That's a really good one. I see why people pause before they give their answers. I like the difference between what people say and what people think, especially in as, as regards media. It just shows, because it's like an echo. It's like, it's a sound that comes back from far away. It shows the, the enormity of the space inside. It was something for a long time I thought was only in books, but, but you see it in television as well, you know? So there's that, because, because that's the, that is the essence of subtext. And that's kind of what we're going for in, in fiction. It, it's intention. So yeah, so there's that. I also like sleeping a lot. I had a nap today. <laughs> and just connections, really. Just feeling understood or like somebody understands you, which I feel like another goal of, you know, fiction. Because there are elements of nonfiction in it, there are elements of ourselves in there. So to feel like you're not alone, because, you know, we're born alone, we die alone. And, and in between, it's just really nice to feel as though all of the, I don't know, junk thought and DNA that makes us and compels us to do things that we're not alone in it because it does feel very lonely if you can just hear some even even something pedestrian like it's always nice to open a new moisturizer or something you know just little things like that I feel like I value it more because it it fades the older you get because we get so used to things we get to expect rather than to wonder and things either meet or fall short of expectations but wonder is it's open i'm not saying that as an absolute but certainly true for me because you know you're a bit too experienced tell me a memory which shaped you hmm i think i was i must have been about maybe 14 or 15 and I had an English teacher at school, an Irish guy, actually. Um, I think his name was Mr. Keogh, but I also think that could have been a gym teacher, and I really don't want to give any gym teacher any credit for something positive. He was my English teacher, and I submitted a short story, and it was some sort of James Bond-inspired thing. It was basically just a video game in, in text. But he told me it was good. He said, this is good. This is exciting. You put this together well. And... It would have been very easy for him to say, no, that's not very good and it should fit this format or, or any one of a number of things that must have certainly been wrong with it. But that encouragement snowballed. It told me that I could make good things, which is a really important lesson for a child to learn. So I suppose that. What's your favorite color? It varies. The longest sort of survivor has been sky blue. I'm in the suburbs and there's always someone screaming. Yeah, sky blue. It used to be orange because I loved Garfield as a kid. As my uh, influences diversified, <laughs> I moved on to sky blue. Tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of which once existed and now does not. Hmm. Okay, so in the 90s, there was a drink in America called Orbitz. And I learned about it from the Guinness World Records because I think it was a, a food and a drink at the same time. Because it had these floating balls suspended in it. They were, I don't know what they were made of. I think it was probably just some obscure part of the ingredients that's full of X's and Z's. But I, I knew of it. And my dad used to tour manage bands for a living. And he was on the OzFest with a band called Pitch Shifter. And I asked him as a, as a kid, I must have been about, I don't know, 12. 
get me some of this orbit stuff. You know, I, I, you know, I thought it was a really cool concept. You know, I thought it was cool. Up and down America, he had told all of the roadies on this tour with him, hey, you know, find this orbits drink, and and nobody could find it anywhere. They were in like I think it was Indiana or some somewhere silly, and they found it in a, a, a gas station and bought up their whole supply of it. And so by the time it had gotten back to me, the only bottles of Orbitz left in America, it was well out of date, but I still drank all of them and they were disgusting. And uh, <laughs> that's the end. That's how that story ends, you know, and it doesn't exist anymore. I assuming that, I'm assuming it's because it's disgusting. What, if anything, is perfect? There are just moments of some songs, aren't there? You know, there's the, the moments where you, you sigh, you want the things that you listen forward to. Um, I'm trying to think of a few. I'm not going to be able to think of any, am I? But there's just, just these moments where, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it is about music specifically that just manages to, to capture a person's personality somewhere between the spacing of the notes and the, the, you know, the, the tone that they lean into a word with. There's a song by Bobby Caldwell called "Do for Love," uh, what you won't do for love. That there are multiple moments in that song that have me swoon yeah so so if there are if there if there is such a thing as anything perfect the, i mean i think the japanese would tell you it's somewhere between a, a, a cherry blossom leaf a petal falling from a tree and it landing on the floor and just just on the on the journey downward it's perfect but i always i don't know i don't like things that if, if it's ephemeral of course it's perfect it was never going to be anything else but if it's something you can listen to again i think that's cool that it can be perfection who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind why Say Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. I really, uh, I, I think the surest sign that you have a really solid character is that you can divide them into multiple characters and have those characters also be interesting. Because that's what happened in Samurai Champloo, the series that that, that team made afterwards. Uh, because you have Spike who is uh, reckless and wild and unpredictable, but he's also calculated and very skilled and professional. And you have this dichotomy in him, which makes the way that he behaves and reacts to the world always kind of interesting, if kind of sulky and teenagers, uh, teenagerish. And for Samurai Champloo, they split that into two Gestalt characters. You had Jin, yeah, Jin, who was professional and, and skilled and, and serious. Um, and then you had Mugen, who was wild and reckless and, and unpredictable. And they, they let, the, you know, they, they carry the show as two different characters and it, and you know it, it seemed to me that spike was split in two for those for those to 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 appear and not only that but you know the 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 way i think part of the heavy lifting for that is done with the story you know because i don't know i don't want to spoil cowboy bebop for anybody but he you know there's there's a moment at, right at the end of the series where he just grabs onto your heart as he fades away and it's like oh god you know that's never going to happen again they're gone oh man I know that's kind of like, I don't know, but there's, all, there's almost certainly better written characters and there's almost certainly more fulfilling and real characters. But I like that. I, I like Spike because it, he exists in this kind of, it's like a, you know, um, camp in the theatrical sense rather than in the, you know, the, the behavioral sense. The, the world of Cowboy Bebop asks us to dis suspend our disbelief and puts us into this pulpy, you know, world of future vice, and and Spike is a perfect character in it. You know, he he's he, it's it's cyberpunk, really. If it's anything, right? 
has more in common with with Blade Runner than it does with any of the Wild West influences or jazz influences that you would notice on the surface. Yeah, so I'd say Spike. There is a song called The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Have you heard it? Yeah. Yeah. My favorite character from fiction of any kind is Johnny from that song. <laughs> because it's there's something specific about the way in which a person just doing what they're really good at against all the odds and mm-hmm. defeating evil by just not even that, but being cocky about it. This kind of like, <laughs> well, not only am I going to beat you and save my own soul, but I want a golden fiddle out of it as well. Mm-hmm. You stupid bastard. Like, like just <laughs> kind of th- this cocky surety of success for good reason. Mm. I don't know what you call it, like bravado or... There's something palpable about that uh, that sense that every character that's ever had that is so, as a character that like hmm. rips my heart. And I think that Johnny, because he is literally not described in any other way, there is no contextual clues or semantic content to his character more than just, I am a dude who was walking and the devil came across me and said, I'm going to take your soul. And mm. like, he was like, no, I'm going to play my fiddle and I'm going to beat you. And you're and not only that, I'm going to beat you and you're going to give me something for the pleasure. You know, it, <laughs> it's wonderful. And at the present moment, that is my favorite character. That's a good answer. I like that better than my answer. So I've watched like one episode of Cowboy Bob. I thought it was incredible and then never watched it again. <laughs> the, 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 um, the, the first one is, is, I would say, far and away the best episode. I really enjoyed it. Like I thought it was amazing. I just it was just one of those things where I kind of got carried away with other things in my life, which happens to me quite a lot when it comes to media. Like mm-hmm. I'll be playing in something and enjoying something deeply, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, like something will happen, and my attention is gone for like a moment. And by the time I get back to it, it's like, well, I could do this, or I could just continue with the thing I was just doing. Oh sure. And, yeah, so I got like seventy percent into a lot of things, and <laughs> uh, don't. But anyway. What fascinates you? Romance has always been really fascinating to me. Uh, I'm reading a book called Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell at the moment, and it's it's um, throwing throwing cut coal into the furnace it, it, for me. It, it, there's um, he okay, so he wrote Cloud Atlas that was developed into a film. He talks about there's a lot of like sci-fi and fantasy and spiritual fantasy in his work, but really all of his fantastical elements just fall under the umbrella of the unlikely and romance doesn't escape from that he has this one book uh called i think i think it was number nine dream and i'm sitting with the book right now and it will be printed on the inside cover oh ghostwritten ghostwritten was the name of that, that book and it's a uh, about this uh, japanese teenager working in a music shop and uh, it's just a sort of coming of age tale but there's a girl walks into the shop and she's browsing records. And for one reason or another, she really, you know, sometimes you meet somebody and they just sort of reverberate. For me, that's whenever I meet someone else with ADHD. But um, in this case, uh, he, he meets this, this girl and, and really vibes with her immediately. But then, of course, she, she leaves because he works in a shop and people don't stay in shops. And he obsesses about her for a while, I think a week plus. And the next time he sees her again, She's been feeling the same way that entire time and thinking about him and what he must be like and everything. And it's so unlikely, but it's fresh fruit. It's, uh, it, 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 it sort of hones the edge of the way you look at the world, I think, to, to, to believe that the unlikely is possible. 
Um, so that would be my answer is, is romance. I am a hapless romantic. I, <laughs> I believe so truly in the concepts of soulmates and like love at first sight. And like the biological for basis for love, this is something that I learned recently, which is just below, it blew my mind. Very literally, our brains are, they're not lazy, they're efficient. And what we admire most in another person is what we don't have, the traits that we do not have, because mm -hmm. we're like, oh, this person is confident and, you know, mm -hmm. um, sure of themselves and everything like that. And mm -hmm. I'm for some way or another, you may be outwardly confident, but inwardly you might be like looking for something because as you know we work on different levels and, and sometimes internally we can have a turmoil that externally is not possible or even cognitively is not possible but mm -hmm. something will happen and your inner self will be exposed for a moment and you'll realize oh, okay actually this maybe i'm not as sure of myself as i thought um anyway love is the act of valuing a person for traits that you do not have because your brain literally goes well i could do all this personal work to get more confident or mm -hmm. i could just be in a partnership with this person and therefore have this trait on me <laughs> phenomenal and so instances of true love are instances where you have seen someone who physically and in some sort of manner have determined that their traits are the ones that you want. And scientists are still baffled as to like why the feeling is the way it is. Cause you know, you don't have to feel anything more than just, I want this thing, but we do, we feel appreciation. We feel longing. We feel these other mm. emotions, which are kind of predicated on that initial one, but True. it doesn't, none of this fact ruins love for me. In fact, it makes it a little bit more beautiful that, Oh, I have viewed this person and adjudicated this person to have a trait that I don't have that I want on a biological level. But on mm. a cognitive level, they are the sun. They are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm going to write poems and songs and paintings about them um, hmm. and appreciate them and obsess and like, you know, stare at the ceiling thinking of beautiful days that i am going to have with this person you may never speak to again like there's of course in um, in a lot of romance movies there's like the oh two characters lock eyes in the subway in new york and it's like the whole movie is about how they meet again and little mm -hmm. things like that and and they're that parallel of like i am going through this and i am also going through this and we will work from there mm -hmm. um, so I, that resonates very very deeply with me the scary thing about that is the reason why people fall out of love is because they develop the traits that they have and then their brain does a calculation where it's like, well, does this person make me a better version of myself or have oh, I God. done everything I need to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely ended some relationships that way where it's just like, hey, you know, I would actually be better off. It's like, oh, okay. It's a very utilitarian way of looking at exactly, the, the yeah. act of understanding someone. Uh, what is the most valuable thing you ever learned? Hmm. Yeah, I suppose a, f a good first impression, because it, like you say, you know, the human brain isn't lazy, it's efficient, and it's a labor-saving exercise to make a good first impression and then be yourself the rest of the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> people will find reasons to like you. I totally agree with that. If you could name a hot sauce, what would you call it, and why? I would make a, like a Thai hot sauce 
um, I would have it as merch for Rage Against the Machine. It would be called Zach Della Russia with like Sriracha. <laughs> oh God, that is that is woefully brilliant. Congratulations. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what is your most prized physical possession? I mean, it's gonna you know, I, I, <coughs> and the obvious ones are like laptop, right? But right now, I have a, a plant that has nearly died a few times and I keep cutting off infected roots and, and leaves and, and it's still alive. And I am so terrified of overwatering it that right now it's looking a little pruny, but I think it's symbolic. You know, it's like, if I can keep the plant alive, then things can't be that bad. What inspires you? I think trying, seeing people try is really, is really cool. Like recently I watched a show, I think it's on Netflix, called Love on the Spectrum. And it's about people with varying degrees of Asperger's syndrome trying to date in Australia. And they're always young people, sort of 20 to 25. And it was very, very moving. I watched it with a good friend of mine over Skype. And it was just very beautiful. You know, hearing their parents talk about them really brought on the waterworks but just hearing them talk about themselves and what they would hope for, you could tell that there's no artifice about it. I mean, they, they were unguarded about their dreams. And I think there was, you, you could tell there was just so much behind every sentence. There were four or five sentences unsaid for every sentence that was said which I suppose links back to, you know, one of the things that I like the most, you know, sort of subtext. And just seeing people try and fail. I think it's one of Pixar's recommended storytelling bits of advice is you, you respect people the same or more for their attempts than for their successes. And I really believe that because being a, a, a writer or even just a person who makes things, there's, there's a lot of self-doubt and failure Unless you started very, very young, in which case it, it's like having a, a fifth limb named talent. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really inspiring to see people try. Did you ever have an epiphany? If so, what was it about? Yeah, they have happened, but they... Well, they're, they're, that's the thing about epiphanies is that, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I had this realization and my life was never the same. And I really envy that because all of my epiphanies have lasted about half an hour and they've been no <laughs> less intense. You know, it's just been like, oh, my God, that's how people see me. Or like, oh, my God, it turns out that, you know, the, the things that I do have a lasting impact in the world. And they're not just things that exist in the moment that I'm saying or doing them. But they don't last for very long, maybe because I'm very easily distracted. So, yeah, I mean, either of those two, if you like. But I think the nature of epiphanies, I mean, because it has a, a religious root, right? It's this, it's, it's this bolt from above that, that lets you know the nature of things. I don't think I have that much truth waiting in me just to pop out. I think most of my epiphanies are from the outside in, and they're very hard to digest that way. You know, no, no, no realizations that we have are ever really external, or at least the ones that we act on are never external. But there's more of them externally than there are inside, I feel. But then I've never tried acid, so... If you could say all of your work had a theme, what would that theme be? Those are personal odds with their environment. You know, Sam, but yeah, Sam from Starship Goldfish exists in the universe that's very, well, not very, but mostly adjusted. You know, it, it, space is just big gaps between dotted civilizations that have advanced past killing one another. 
And then you have somebody who shows up who's all insecurity and, um, and energy and, and is manic and he wants to be loved, but he doesn't want anyone to get close to him and he's just like a mess. That would be the theme because I never really feel in place. And, you know, everyone's around Sam in the show is, is hoping that he won't do some horrible, you know, violent, awful thing that day as he, you know, has all this rich kid wish fulfilling uh you know uh, uh, a suite of options ahead of him like you know fly the ship here or blow this up or go and ruin this civilization's day or some awful thing i suppose the 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 angle that the show develops on is his personal growth into being a a better person with ghostworth however it's the same thing except sam is the environment that he's juxtaposed against yeah so i would say uh, yeah seen in my work and something that that I find it easy, at least, to write on as a theme is a juxtaposition. I have been like a fan since it was called Sam Sweet Milk, and I still call it Sam Sweet Milk. <laughs> you um, can call it that if you like. That's cool. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it doesn't click in my head. It's always Sam Sweet Milk in my head. <laughs> I think probably mine too. Uh, it, it's just not a very sci-fi name. It's one of those names that you have to. Because the thing about sci-fi is sci-fi has a baked-in audience. If you have a show like, I don't know, Two and a Half Men, it doesn't tell you anything about the show, right? But everybody understands a domestic situation, whatever, you know, th there's lots of relatable things there. But with sci-fi, it's so unrelatable that you need to have a sci-fi aspect in the title, really, as the first amount of advertising a person reading the title will get. So calling it Sam Sweet Milk, it just seemed like we were setting ourselves up for something um, difficult down the road well my show is called the curiosity project and does literally nothing to engender the f uh, philosophical feeling that i do and i have yet to find a reason to care um <laughs> i just i like the name the curiosity project even though there's i've found out another podcast called the curiosity project but i intend to be the best curiosity project oh, i um, think with podcasts there's all you're always doomed to be i mean it, you know the format is very it's set right it's it's audio for a period of time. I and I think that yeah, I, I, I there's there's probably more than two. I wouldn't worry about it. It's probably the same thing for Starship Goldfish is probably What makes you smile? Like interactions between people. Like I'll be on the bus and I'll see, you know, a couple and one will just adjust the other's hair. And I'll hear, you know, the Danish word for love. So yeah, I I, I, I like being reminded that and and it takes the weight off. I, I, I think for creative type people i don't know if i can speak for everybody but certainly for me there's a kind of hey i don't want to be anonymous thing about it and and that's very isolating and it's a lot of pressure on the individual to to not be anonymous because we're not point not 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 something percent of the world's population of course we're anonymous and it's and it's a relief to to see that other people are having big entire lives as well and it's not just inside our heads you know how do you feel about death? Uh, I've been thinking about it more lately. I think that death is what gives us substance. I think it's, it's the font that life is written in. It's the mathematics underpinning everything. And it's very scary that one day I'll be gone and I should be thinking about doing things that matter during that time. But then, of course, there's a definition of what matters. And, you know, I look out into the garden and I see a smashed snail because it was raining the night before. And I went out walking to get my laundry in. And I think, well, no, maybe maybe life doesn't really matter that much. And, and it's just a, a blip. And that, in the same way, is 
seeing little snippets of the insides of other people's lives being a weight off, that's also a weight off to feel like life isn't actually all that important in the grand scheme of things because importance is something that we weigh upon it. Yeah, I've been thinking about death a lot lately. That's a weird, that's a, that's a funny question because I've already been thinking about it. I haven't really been talking about it. I've also yeah. been doing a, a lot of thinking about death. I think a lot of people have just because of the circumstances of the time. Oh yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah, oh, that's reassuring. For me, the reason why this question like resonates is that I'm totally unsure of how I feel about death. I'm not sure if I'm deeply, truly terrified of the foundational assumption that one day I will no longer exist and nothing I can do, no temple I can build, no entertainment I can give will ever stop that. And it can even be like one day I will just have an aneurysm and I'll just drop and that's it. But there's also the part of me that's like, well, yeah, but if everything lasted forever, it would be kind of shitty, right? Like if, if I didn't have like to bring it back to your example earlier of if the petal didn't fall off the tree, you wouldn't get any new petals. And if night didn't come, you wouldn't have any new days. And I'm sure there'll be people that'll come after me that because I'm gone, there's no space for that would be equally and beautifully themselves and resplendently wonderful. And during the time that I have between now and then, which is indeterminate, I can kind of do whatever I want because I'm going to die anyway. And yeah. I, I have an opportunity then. And I'm, I've been given the gift of like, I can treat people who I, however I want. And I'm choosing to treat people with kindness and respect and care. And because of mm -hmm. the belief system that I have, because I want to treat people with kindness and respect and because like, I don't have to, I mean, you can live your entire mm -hmm. life as an asshole if you want to, but sure. you, you get, you gain so much by having the dual perspective that you don't have to treat anyone well, but you can choose to, and none of it matters anyway. There will be like, I don't know, none of, none of my questions have ever kind of dealt with God because I don't think it really matters because no matter what, you are out of this area. Like you are, mm. you are gone. Either your soul goes to heaven or you, you just cease to exist. So whatever mm -hmm. you do here does not make a difference. You, you have the autonomy to do that. Uh, and those are the dualities that I kind of, yeah, I store my entire life on and, and wonder every now and again which one wins. And some, sometimes they do win and I fall into these deep pits of, oh God, why am I doing this to actually this is awesome and it i think it's about keeping a balance somewhere and you know it, it, it there's there's something in creative there's some death in creativity that there's certainly death inspired creativity because you know we're just kind of uh, you know i heard it described once as you know you when you're born you're sort of in an expanse and you're just sitting there and the expanse seems to go on forever and you it makes sense to just sit there and die because if you know the expanse goes on forever, but if you pick a direction and walk in it, well, isn't that better? If you're going to die anyway, maybe you'll find something there. But it's certainly more of an opportunity than sitting still, which is you know a very dim view of existence. But I think creativity is it's it's walking the plane. You know, it's going out into the dark and seeing if anything's there. And yeah, I, I think about you know media a lot and and what our, our stories mean for one another. And I think a lot of it or at least the impact of it and having people feel that they can relate to it 
I think that's all about death. I think it's about reminding each other that we're not alone in this experience and we're all going to die. And we can not make things because we don't have the energy or we're not inspired. But when we do, people notice. I don't know if there's necessarily value in that, but it feels good or positive, if not good. Yeah, I don't know if I have a fully formed thought on that, but I do think creativity is a desperate, you know, it's like your, your life flashing before your eyes before you die. It's just, it's a, it's a movie before the end, creating things before death. Tell me about something you learned recently that amused you. So a consortium of hedge funders and financiers and pension fund uh, investors and basically the sort of finance side of the Western world has kind of unanimously agreed to divest from fossil fuels and start putting money into things like, you know, not necessarily things that are carbon neutral all over, but things that help rather than hinder, because they're, they're realizing now with the science that their pension funds are no good if they pay out on a dead planet in the same way that, you know, militaries are planning for like, OK, so uh, it's going to make things a lot more complicated for us if, you know, certain countries are uninhabitable and there's mass uh, exoduses because those are going to reach our shores eventually. So you have these very sane and logical people who are kind of above the level of government because they set the tempo. Um, now turning around to governments and being like, okay, you need to change your shit up. And then the governments are actually listening, but they never listened before when it was just science or just people being like, hello, you work for me, please stop us all from dying. It's only when you start fucking with their wallet that they're like, okay, cool. Yeah, all right, here we go. And I thought that was funny. It was almost, it was like Satan being tapped on the shoulder by super Satan being like, hey, you're being a bit evil. What is beautiful? Truth is beautiful. I, I, I think secrets are beautiful because they're truths that never get sullied. Because when you say something, it gets judged or twisted or, or anything. But if you know something yourself to be true and it doesn't necessarily need anyone else's approval in order to remain being true, then that's a beautiful truth because it's pristine. Would you describe yourself as cute and cuddly? I don't know that I would, actually. I don't know what I, that I would describe myself as cute and cuddly because I lost 16 kilograms in the last year. So I'm not cuddly anymore. <laughs> I know that's a very thin reading of cuddly, but you know what? I lost a shitload of weight. Yeah, I'm cute as fuck. Yeah, I would describe myself as like well fucking cute and a bit cuddly. <laughs> would you describe yourself as cute and cuddly? Ooh. Um, so here's the thing about these questions, right? I don't think about the questions when I'm for myself because I'm answer like... The, answer the goddamn question, Tessa. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I would. I am cute as fuck and I'm also cuddly as fuck. Hell fuck. <laughs> Yeah. Why five? Uh, what what do you mean? Why, why? Oh, why? Ah, I get it. I, I was like, what the fuck? Why what? Uh, no, why five? That's good. I like that. I'm gonna keep. Yes, I would. I would get describe myself as cute and cuddly. Uh, partly because estrogen causes two things. It causes skin to like smoothen out, and my I didn't really have much acne anyway. But like my acne, uh, my my very little pimples to go away, and my skin to become like really soft and like ivory and weird and like like lovely and also it redistributes fat so like i have like handles and hips and stuff and like and it's like yeah i'm i can give myself like a good hug and i i don't really like 
there is the weight thing in cuddly like do you need to carry a certain amount of body weight to be cuddly i don't think so i i actually judge cuddly based on hugability so like if someone is like huggable that's when they're cuddly like if a if a teddy is like really huggable it's cuddly that's in the same in the same way like if you have a blanket you could be cuddly in the blanket because it's like you're getting a hug yeah cuddly is a is a physical description rather than a a state of being yeah so we can we can forgive people for not always being cuddly like i'm i'm all i'm i'm all ribs and shoulders now so i don't think of myself as cuddly anymore the the thing about these questions i don't answer them because i'm like i can if i answer them i predispose what the guest is going to say i'm like i can't do that because I'll be less good at my job if I answer these questions. And I do have uh-huh. answers. If I like, if I, because I had to create the question, I had to test out the questions. But I'm far more interested in what like people have to say. Because I think part of it is that there's like this deep seated anxiety in me that I don't really have any, anything interesting to say. So it's like, uh, I'll just facilitate and I'll see what happens. Right. Um, well, if it helps, you've said some very interesting things so far today. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. Um, I, I could like, when I say that I have the deeper things, it's like when I'm around people that I feel comfortable with, I'm like, yeah, what I'm saying here matters and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is a random stranger. These are random strangers who are listening to me. Like Mm -hmm. what the fuck, who the fuck am I? Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's anxiety inducing it to, to, to know that somebody out there is going to develop a privately held opinion of you. But then on the other hand, it, it's, it's as completely cut off from you as adoration. You know, there's not the mortifying ordeal of being known, to quote a meme that I read recently. But, you know, somebody developing a private opinion of you doesn't have any bearing on who you actually are. Um, so it's, very, it's really sterile in that way, which is nice. Where do you feel safest? Safest? I suppose it would be a time... When I lived with my grandmother some years ago, she had a corgi called Robin, and she had a cottage with this little sort of garden that was on a slope underneath a walnut tree. And in the mornings, I would go out with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and I'd just throw the ball for Robin um, back when he was still alive, poor thing. And yeah, that was that was it. That was at peace, you know? I would sip, and then I would have one hand that wasn't slathered in a dog's mouth gore that uh, was sipping, you know, I would be sipping with, and one that was slothered in a dog's mouth gore to throw a ball with. And that's my happy place. I, uh, I don't go there a lot anymore because the dog's dead and I'm in a different country. But yeah, I'd say that that time in space, that freeze frame of my life would be a happy place. If you were on a starship, what position would you hold? Okay, so do you watch Star Trek? I do, yeah. Picard is almost in this category, but really I'm talking about Kirk. Can you imagine James T. Kirk occupying any other position on that ship? No. That's it, right? He's shoots from the hip, oddly sexual and soft-spoken maverick, and you can't picture him in navigation or even in, you know, maybe counseling or maybe a barman. Possibly because Kirk aligns with some American notion of the masculine in the 60s. But if if I was on a ship at all, I'd want to be fucking captain. I, you know, or, or, or I would be like a prisoner in the brig 
for being too wild. Because I just don't think that, that I would have any place on that ship. I wouldn't deserve to be there unless I was a very confident, you know, capable person with all my wits about me all the time. But then, yeah, to be honest, okay, I watched an episode of, of the original Star Trek recently with, with Kirk, and now I'm definitely going off subject, where he was, you know, citing the legal codes of Starfleet. And maybe it's a very uh, limited reading of early Star Trek to say that Kirk was kind of a maverick. If I was on a starship, yeah, I would like to be captain. But failing that, I would just like to write a story where I'm captain, because that's safer. What is a feeling or experience you've had which does not have a word that you wish did? I was watching Moral Oral, the Adult Swim claymation series about an abused child in a podunk town and his awful family and the quiet tragedy of the lives of people who live there and their alcoholism and their sexual release, but it's a misplaced need for, for connection. But watching that show, a lot of people look back at their own childhood through its lens. And it was, it was the feeling of just like regret for things that other people had done. Do you think there is more good than bad in the world? Yes, absolutely. I think that bad news is just more noteworthy. If we're in a cafe and we're all sitting around, we hear a plate smash somewhere, everybody looks to the direction of the plate smashing. If somebody proposes, it gets the same reaction. <laughs> I, um, I just think the good is so mundane and domestic that it's unremarkable because there's so much of it. I mean, the universe set the, the, the conditions in which life could arise. Uh, you know, how much more benevolent can we really ask it to be? If you could give just one piece of advice, what would that be? I don't know if I'm in a position to do that. You know, I, I can give specific advice, but I don't know if I can give people advice on how to live their lives because I'm very good at it. I, 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 like to, I give advice, but I rarely take my own advice. So I don't know if it's good or not. So a net positive would just be try. The word try. Try full stop. <laughs>